Hey guys, it's Angela, the host of Creative Architects by Castos. Today we're doing a little something different. Uh, we have a bonus episode from our friends over at the Chop Shop, which is a music production podcast. Join music producers DJ React and Eddie James as they sit down and chop it up with some of the most prolific musicians, producers, and audio engineers in the business. React is a veteran DJ and producer who has worked on projects with the likes of D12's Danon, Porter, DJ Ed on Eminem's Shade 45 channel on SiriusXM, and was the official DJ for the New York Jets. Eddie James is a staple in the hip-hop community who has produced music for multi-platinum rapper Jadakiss, Joe Budden, Big Daddy Kane, Queen Latifah, and so many more. In this episode that we're sharing today, Enjoy this clip of the Chop Shop with five-time Grammy Award-winning Focus, the son of Bernard Edwards Sr., the bassist from the group Chic. It was Dr. Dre who recognized his talent and skills, which is why in 2001, he signed him as a staff producer for Aftermath. Dr. Dre, Beyonce, Eminem, Kendrick Lamar, Anderson Pock, The Game, Snoop Dogg, and so many more are among the artists that Focus Three Dots has produced music for. Listen to this episode and more at www.officialchopshoppod.com and stream wherever you listen to podcasts. You are the son of a legend, a legend. And I have a, a quick little story about your father, Mr. Bernard Edwards, mm. super duper producer. Um, one of the illest bases that I've ever heard in my life. A guy who really changed my life, so to speak. Like for real, like those records that um, he was a part of with Sheik, Sister Sledge. I mean, I mean, if you want to go into eighty early eighties, the David Bowie records. The he, he literally resurrected um, along with Nile Rodgers, his partner. Um, you know, Dinah Ross's career. I believe. You know, it was she didn't have many records until that Diana record came out. Right, right, right. It, right. You know, that's what what I think. So. The, here's the funny thing when i was younger me and my brother we would we would um act as um see the guys on the album covers i saw ray parker jr on radio you know i was like i want to be ray parker jr my brother was like nah he was older than me he was like i'm ray parker and you pick one of the rest of the guys <laughs> <laughs> right, right i was right, like right. all right i guess i'm somebody in radio whoever and then there was chic man you know and then uh, brothers johnson but let's get of to course chic. yeah so I already knew my brother was like going to say, I'm Nile Rodgers. He found on the credits that the, the guitar, like the lead guitar, and that's what he wanted. So I was like, I'm the other dude because I'm looking at the album cover and it's like two dudes in that one room, the black and white ones with, with the ladies. And I was like, All right, I guess I'm the other guy. He plays the bass. But I was very keen to the bass. So we would grab like mom's brooms and shit. And I had the bass, and I was just like, yo, I'm Bernard Edwards, and I'm down. <laughs> <laughs> and like, we'd be in the crib, my mom, we like, I'm dead serious, bro. Like, this is, um, but the music, it made a connection with me as a DJ. The first record I ever DJed and scratched was Good Times. That is oh, a wow. fact. My first DJ routine was uh, Good Times, you know? So wow. I always identified with, with Pops, with your pop. But it makes sense, because when I hear your music, I always feel a connection to it. Um, you wear many hats. You are a bassist, right? Um, a bass. little bit. I, I would never say I'm a bassist, but I play bass a little bit, yeah. He's being very modest. 
ladies and gentlemen. Hey, I'm not my father. <laughs> but listen, come on. I've I heard I've heard the records, man. I've seen you get down too. Like I've done my homework or all throughout the years before we even met. And I was like, man, he's mm. nasty. Multi uh, instruments, people. Your music, the chords that you play, the goosebump chords. You know, you know, you know the chords. Yes, sir. Um, yes, sir. And then uh, when you're chopping samples, um, you are hip hop. Your connection with the records that you choose and flip, the way you flip them are just crazy too. And a lot of instrumentation, man, that I just uh, admire. Can you just give me just your origins or your starter kit when you started? Um, I already know that you were a fly on the wall. I've, I've read that you were fly on, on the wall at your dad's sessions. But yeah, you're, let's fast forward just a tad bit about um, your beginnings with, uh, with hip-hop music because I'm interested in that as well. My real roots, of course, being the son of, um, my roots are in R&B. That's my first love. So, of course, I heard more of the commercial stuff, but I didn't fall in love with hip-hop until I heard this record from Public Enemy uh, called mm. Bring the Noise. Um, Ooh, and I, okay. I fell literally in love with hip-hop. And that's when I started doing a different kind of research because at the time, even when I was uh, making R&B, it was mm -hmm. always hip-hop undertones, you know? Mm -hmm. But um, I didn't want to be a hip-hop producer. I wanted to do R&B. I thought I could sing and everything. Well, but you can't. When I, no. But <laughs> when, <laughs> when I uh, really started digging and getting into, like, uh, KRS, he's one of my favorites, him and uh, mm -hmm. Scott LaRock, Eric B and Rakim, um, all the stuff that I came from in New York, like the boom bap stuff, mm -hmm. And then I heard Public Enemy and I lost my mind. I lost I my agree. mind. And their sound, the Bomb mm -hmm. Squad and all, yep. you know, um, Hank Shockley, Keith Shockley, like Eric for them to turn around, mm -hmm. for them to turn around and do what I called beautiful chaos, because mm. there were so many pieces in just one beat. Yeah. And somehow it worked together, mm -hmm. and they just intrigued me. Like it, they, they're the reason why I fell in love with X Clan, and it just kept going on and on. Like that sound, that aggression, um, then going to you know NWA and right. Ice Cube and stuff like that. Like that's, that's that aggression is what got me into hip hop. That Bring the Noise record, I believe, came out in maybe '87. Mm -hmm. There was a lot of hip hop before that. So you didn't make a there. connection with with like like the message or or like um, even on Rockham or no matter what I heard it yeah they ask consumers this question a lot and they say when did you fall in love with hip hop mm -hmm. that's when I fell in love okay I get you see it. what I'm saying like I, I get it I I understood it I was able to make beats I connected with it it wasn't a passion or a love of mine until I heard Public Enemy. And my boy was playing the record, my boy Black. Mm -hmm. And I remember him just putting it on. He had a 12-inch, and he, and I lost it, bro. <laughs> I lost yeah. it. I remember it like it was yesterday, um, especially yeah. that record, because it was on the Less Than Zero uh, soundtrack. And I understand that, because the first album maybe took me a whole another 12 years from the first time I was introduced to it in 1980. So it took me 92, and it was a low-end theory for me. Yeah. You know, but the PE record was amazing. Like, um, I had never heard anything like it. The Bomb Squad was definitely I identified with it too. It actually blew my mind what they did. <laughs> if we go to who sampled it or whatever and, and look at, you know, just public enemy, you're gonna get like a a thousand samples, man. Just right. 
and then like a hundred samples or maybe even 30 uh, 50 to 100 samples in one record that it, that they yeah. were using just inc- exactly. incredible you were all r&b prior to how did you get into uh production i mean were you in the church uh, were you playing instruments at church uh obviously your father is who he yeah. is were the instruments always around when did you start actually beat making too like i want to know like the early oh, i started making songs when i was six um Ooh. so my father he had 45s and 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 you know i, I really was just intrigued with music period all yeah. facets and formats of it so I would, you know, he had his 45 collection and I'd rummage through that at uh, three or four years old, um, five or six. You know, you start writing your little ABC type songs and, yeah. uh, you know, it started my love for music started around six mm-hmm. and at eight years old in second grade. I'll never forget it. We moved from Jersey to Stanford, Connecticut, and I missed a year of schooling. So I had to start second grade again. Yeah. Yeah. So. So okay in the second grade, I was telling you, fail. yeah, you fail. <laughs> yeah, no, well, yeah. Hey, I feel might as well grade. say that, yeah. <laughs> no, no. Well, as when I moved from when we moved from Jersey, I was in second grade, and we moved mm-hmm. to Stanford, Connecticut, and that's the first time I had to do placement testing. Oh yeah, I yeah. failed that thing. <laughs> oh man, yeah, I keep that, it a buck. Yeah, oh, yeah. Oh, so it was horrible. I, I failed the placement test, so I had to do that again. But anyway. um, you know, when the teachers start asking you what you want to be, I already told them I wanted to be a music producer at eight years old. There was no doubt in my mind that I was going to be in the music industry. Ne- that I never wanted to do anything else. <laughs> That's pretty prolific. Yeah. I mean, yeah. at eight? Yeah. Like, um, I never wanted to do anything else. I was in every band in my, in my school. We had a lower school band, a middle school band, and an upper school band because my, my uh, school was a college prep school. Yeah. I, was in, I played drums in all the bands. And Pops definitely, I mean, actually being who he was, you know, sometimes parents either do not want their kids to be in t- involved. And in- Yeah, he. I mean, my dad, we had a den where his office was. And in the den, uh, he mm-hmm. had a Fostex four track. He had a... <laughs> yo, react. Um, yeah. <laughs> First of all, yo, yeah, yo, folks, that, buddy. That's, that's a running joke uh, on the chop shop. Either was a Fostex or a Tascam, but Fostex yeah. came before, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so we're seven episodes in. You're the seventh uh, person. Every single person who's came on this show has either had a Fostex or a Tascam, a Tascam four, yeah. uh, four track. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. yeah. We got the t-shirts too, the, the four track t-shirts. Yeah. That's dope. Yeah. The that Fostex was, that thing was a lifesaver, but I mean, mm-hmm. before it, it was, you know, we had, I was a uh, product of Radio Shack. So it was the realistics, uh, the realistic double. Yes, absolutely. So had I everything. was doing the pause button. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But oh, um, it couldn't couldn't afford anything else but realistic. Yeah, I, it couldn't go, afford Gemini. Man, come on. Yeah, <laughs> my like, first my, mixer was a, was a realistic. I don't, yeah, yeah. I don't with the that. up faders too. Yes, like, of course. Yeah, yes. and then they had the, the the terribly whack one with with a crossfader, and they had a it was really tough, and it had a little click in the middle yeah. of the fader. Yeah. I'm like, what is yeah. this? Yeah, and I was like, this is terrible. They weren't they weren't making it for us. We know that. No, they were not. No. They also had an echo chamber too. I I bought the echo chamber. I, yeah, it was I really on that. when I had the one, two, y'all, 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 you don't stop. <laughs> <laughs> Yo, having the echo chamber back in the days, you were doing something. But, yeah, you uh, was big time. I, I, yeah, I overheard you just said pause tapes. 
that's how that's how I started getting into looping and sampling and stuff. But I was doing that for especially when I was doing a lot of R and B. I was uh, doing drum loops so that I would have something to play to, you know. Okay. But um, as time went on, like I said, he had a Lindrum. Um, I was just about to mention that. Before my father passed, though, he had a, a really good relationship and an endorsement with Ensonic. So my oh. first taste of a sampler, I can go all the way back. Remember the SD1, the little sam- uh, the little yeah. keyboard sampler? I had that first. <laughs> Absolutely. And then, yeah, and then I got um, my pops got pretty much every keyboard that they made, and I had the EPS 16 turbo and that was my first yeah that was my first sampling i lost my mind i was sampling everything man how how many i mean that thing had like crazy seconds too like like yeah the sample 16 plus yeah that that one had that was fully blown out i had the sd1 i had the dp4 what years are we dating uh on this uh maybe 86 oh no 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 and sonic well that would be late 80s Early 90s. Yeah, 87, 88. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But still, I remember, I remember looking at those, and I was like, wow, my father might kick me in the nuts if I asked for it. <laughs> I couldn't believe he had all that stuff. Yeah. It's a lot of money. He had a Profit 600, a, a sequential. Mm-hmm. Uh, he had a Profit 600, and then he got all that stuff from Insonic. He was like, I don't play keyboards. You could just take it. And that was my wow. first, like, yeah. That just, was my first time oh, touching that stuff. You know, I've talked with other producers and, um, you know, uh, we've had debates about, you know, the MPs and actually hitting buttons and having drum machines and then sampling with, um, you know, pads and stuff like that. I always yeah. found it hard and still to this day to sample on a keyboard. It drives really? me. Ab- oh, it drives me absolutely crazy. It's it's native to me now. Yeah. yeah. When I see y'all get down on it, like you know, guys who who sample on keyboards, um, it just it drives me nuts. I just like it reacts really good with it too. Mm-hmm. Um, I've always found it uh just hard, you know. Um, but you had those early drum machines. I mean, mm-hmm. drum machines, but of keyboards. Mm-hmm. You were already ahead of the game. Oh yeah. I mean, I had the ASR ten. That's you know, Timbaland used to yeah. kill that machine. Kanye, all of them. Um, Knotts kills it to this day. Yeah, um, so that was yeah. one of my, yeah, Jake. So I had that machine for a long time. A lot of the first records I was doing was on that, you know? And then I, mm. that's, so when you say that it's hard to sample in a keyboard, switching over to the MPC, it, it was a learning curve for me. Really? Mm. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's different because when you, uh, in the ASR 10, when you sample, mm-hmm. um, it's the same kind of truncation, but still, it's just I was. It was way faster for me to do it in the keyboard than it was to do it mm. in the MPC. I see dudes fly on the ASR too. Yeah, it's, it really was a just. It was an easy interface. It was there was mm-hmm. not much to it. Right. There was not much to it. You know what I'm saying? So if you were doing little tricks, it just made you doper at having an ASR10 or working the right. ASR10. You know. That's interesting. It wasn't even like um, the interface part of it, like the the buttons. I just thought that, that the keys always used to throw me off. Like, man, like, all right, you know, just on the keyboards, like yeah. hitting the samples as opposed to um, just having pads. I mean, that's, yeah. I guess, just because I've always had drum machines. What knocks me out the water is watching kids play keys on the pads, on the, the Ableton Push. Oh, yeah, right. Oh, crazy. yeah, yeah. That knocks me out the water. I've seen this kid literally like. I'm glad you just mentioned <laughs> that because this guy right here, the buyer of equipment, Mr. No, Reality. I got lucky. This I guy lucky. buys equipment. I got outbid. 
I got outbid. I got I got lucky. <laughs> he had, so he had the, he's just sent me today a picture <laughs> of the Ableton. <laughs> Side story. Uh, I was on eBay laying in bed, I was wide awake. Yo, let me let me put a bid on this bitch real quick. Yeah. Put a bid in. Yeah. I was like, oh, I'm the highest bidder. All right, cool. It's like three sixty four. It's like I'm not gonna get it at three sixty four. I woke up, there was like eleven hours left. So like, you're still the highest bidder. I was like, Oh shit, I'm gonna get it. Mm. And then somebody and then somebody outbid me. Oh, I wound yeah. up going for like four thirty. Whatever. Yeah, but, but he is I do the, buy he, a lot of stuff though. He is the buyer of equipment and then and then what ultimately happens is I bu- I usually buy the equipment from him. It's like I it's like I buy it. <laughs> Test it, right. show Eddie how to use the shit, <laughs> yeah. and right. then he's like, "I'm like, I, I don't need it no more." He's like, "Cool, give it to me." Right, absolutely. Right, right. I, I get it. all the hand me downs, man. Um, <laughs> speaking of early records, yeah, when you were with a group called the Tri Pack, yeah, yeah, it's a rare record. I've heard I it. Tried to, I tried to buy one. <laughs> Jeez, that was a long time ago. I it was, was 1992. Still, yeah, on that. Yeah. Was that your first piece of vinyl that you were on? Yeah, that was the first. That was my first endeavor. Everything like as the group, the group I was in before was called BMPC, Black by Nature, Proud by Choice. Oh, you're really on some X Clan shit. Oh, bro, don't get it twisted. <laughs> yeah, like I, if you would have heard our sound, like like everybody that I used to produce back in the day, it was all my boys from um, downtown Stanford. And the other reason why I learned how to rap, there was this kid, LB, that at the time was like my best friend and we locked in and he was he was super dope. He could really, like he had a dope flow and and um, he had a great voice. So mm-hmm. I kind of learned how to rap from him. And then as time went on, again, producing kids that I grew up with, my boy um, Cliff, he used to go by Mr. Nasty. Um, okay. He's the one that taught me how to flow. And he's the one that took me through that whole native tongue era. Mm-hmm. Like he he was super into the native tongue. So like Tribe Called Quest, we would actually have sit down debates and, you know, class <laughs> about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're still, so my, still doing my, it to this day. Yeah, and, and yeah. no matter what, any kind of music like that, I call it smart music. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. It, it means everything to me. Those are the okay. things that make me feel something. You know what I'm saying? Moving forward to Aftermath, when did you make the move out to L.A. or how how did you make the connection? It was crazy because I came out to L.A. Uh, with my partner back then and we were producing in a group called Tall, Dark and Handsome. And that's what got me out to L.A., because um, I had the files for the song. It's, it's a track that I did, a couple of songs, and there were tracks that I did. Came out to L.A., and it was all love. Like, it, you know, we, we're producing these records, everything's cool, and then me and my partner fell out. Okay. And so I literally started going from couch to floor, different places, and I stayed out here for uh, for a little while, mm-hmm. and I was working with a group called The Lunatics. Oh, yeah. And, and I was with them for... For some years, I came out back in 93. I came back out and I stayed. And once I, I stayed out there, I started just, you know, meeting different people. Uh, long story short, uh, Omar Gooding, who mm-hmm. was friends with my son's mother, um, she told them that I did beats and I started producing his group at the time. And then he introduced me to Jason Weaver. Jason Weaver turned around and was building a whole production camp in Atlanta. So mm-hmm. <laughs> now all of a sudden I'm moving from L.A. to Atlanta. Wow. And in moving to Atlanta, I was producing this kid named Dax that was signed to Boo 2 Productions. And I did his whole demo. And his people had ins to Dre. 
So they wanted to sign him over at Aftermath and gave him uh, gave Dre the music. And the first thing that Dre did was put us in the studio. And they were they were working on a soundtrack for The Wash. Oh and, yeah. And wow. Dre said, Yeah, if you, if y'all can, if you want to, he was like, There's a spot open. Get a song. And we we went in the studio and we made Riding High. That was the one and only oh, record we did, and, and yes. I got on uh, the Wash soundtrack, and then Dre was like, yeah, I'm I'm building a new production team, and if you want to be down, there's a spot for you here. And I was like, man, you ain't saying nothing. Wow. <laughs> you ain't saying nothing. <laughs> it's just crazy because um, we I've spoken to a couple other producers, you know, like uh, Ski. Ski came on, and, uh, yeah. you know, Sean J. Period. Sean. <laughs> yeah, that just moved completely and did a 180 um, with lifestyle. Like, I always find it amazing that you guys are brave enough to leave your roots and go across the continent, basically, to follow your dream and and see it through. Were you terrified by any chance? Because L.A., it's humongous. Like, just moving from New York and, and home where it's safe. And then even still, in the late 90s, early 2000s, people were still cooking up organically in New York, pendulum didn't really switch was it different for you being as young as i was i wasn't moving in fear the only thing i can say is and and this was a fault i was moving more in desperation i was trying to find where i was supposed to be when i was supposed to be there and so i was trying to do a whole bunch of stuff all at the same time and it's funny that my name is focus the only thing i was really focused on was making music but if you saw me i was everywhere i was kind of yeah. just doing everything so when i finally got with um aftermath it just became home it was the first time i could kick back and just be like this is home this is it i've made it you know yeah and even then i didn't kick my feet up i just was like oh if i'm gonna do anything this is where i want to be but um i wasn't scared like even the cultural difference Yep. From New York to L.A., I don't think it was fear. I lived in Englewood Family Hood. I lived in Hoover Ooh. Hood. I've lived in <laughs> uh, Rolling 60s Hood. I've lived in all of these places. And, and I think that, number one, the people that I lived with, big shouts out to everybody that, you know, let me cop a squat on their couch and, and, you know, live in their crib. Um, they've always been supportive and I never was in danger. You know what I'm saying? So I was just going to mention that because, um, moving, moving from, um, from New York to out West, you really had to have a solid homie. Yeah. Because yeah. Yeah. Um, to live in those neighborhoods. I mean, like, you know, I have fam (laughs) out there and, you know, if I didn't have fam, then, you know. I made my mistakes, though. Don't get it twisted. <laughs> <laughs> I made my mistakes. I mean, I, when I first came out of here, I was rocking, you know, white tees and blue jeans with the pant rolled up. But <laughs> the pant leg rolled up. But the thing about it is I was always rocking Timberlands. So I'm I'm living in Inglewood familyhood. And, you yeah. know, they, what set you from? And you hear that from across the street. I'm like, Ooh. I don't know what the hell that means. I don't know what that means. And then yeah. the bad thing about it is my old partner, um, he used to say cuzzo a lot. Yeah. So when I came out here and I would say cuz, <laughs> you know, the homie that told me not to say it again said it so forcefully. I think he knocked it out my vocabulary for the rest of my life. Yo, like it, yeah. <laughs> It's like, unless you gang bang, I was like, okay, got it. <laughs> 
I mean, but even that too, like you were in those aftermath sessions, you know, that just came off the heels of Dre breaking free from Suge. You were in the studio session. Did, did it ever in the back of your head, mind, like, yo, like, you know, he's still hot streets, you know, with this whole Suge and his people and like. I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you two things. Okay. I've never, I've never talked about before. Suge was coming in the studio looking for Dre and I would just be in there. Oh, for real? Yeah, yeah. So when I was in, oh, when shit. I was working at uh, Can-Am, Suge would come up in there and and be throwing doors open looking for Dre. And Ooh. that was my first real introduction to who Suge was. And it was, you know, it was, it was nothing really crazy, but I'm gonna give you this, I've never, I don't think I've ever said this in any interview. Um, prior to Dr. Dre, I was working with Mike Conception. And I was part of the grand jury uh, yeah. production teams. Yeah, so if anything, yeah, that was, you know, I knew I knew more about the street stuff through Mike than Dre. Yeah, I mean, that's 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 super street. Yeah, um, Mike Mike brought me through. <laughs> he brought me through a couple of hoods, and he showed me how, how thorough he is. Mike, oh, literally, man. we drove through Nickerson Gardens, and I was like, yeah. I was literally slumping in the chair like, where the hell are we? <laughs> what did I get myself into? <laughs> but Mike, Mike gets love everywhere. Shout out to Mike Conception. Absolutely, man. Salute. Yeah, I mean, I don't know why I thought about that, but earlier today when I was just driving, I was like, man, I just wonder, like, that was that part of time where, you know, things were really, like, hot. You know what I'm saying? So that's crazy. I could just see a young focus, like, uh, <laughs> you want to, keep, uh, you know, uh, uh, yeah. on the keys or, you know, chopping up the sample in, in this big 600 pound demigod. And be like, yo, Drake. Be like, what up? And then walk out. Ooh. He, did it. he did it for some days. Man, yeah. I'm just so glad that you weren't collateral damage. Nah, nah. Like I, I, was, like, yeah. I was literally. I made a point to this, grab man. your grab your producer, homie. <laughs> <laughs> the, the thing about it is nobody, and I think that that was one of the things that I always kept anonymity in in yeah. my career. Nobody yeah. knew who I was. They didn't know mm. what I was doing, who I was. Like records would come out, they didn't know who I was. That's why the story that I told with the on the God show about yeah. the kid telling me that he was me, like that's that was a real thing because I wasn't anywhere. Like, excuse me, even when Dre mentioned me, mm. he just mentioned me. There was no picture. Nobody, excuse me, nobody knew who I was. So it was really kind of right. crazy. Yeah, that's another crazy story. Um, so there was a fake focus um, on a day focus. <laughs> had a meeting at Def Jam and the guy told him he was Focus. Told you he was you. <laughs> yes. He did my song. Yeah. The 112 was, joint. Yes. Yeah. And it was very serious. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's crazy. There's so many records and I know when I hear as a producer and a DJ when Aftermath sound changed. Yeah. It became a little bit more musical. And a little bit, and a little bit more drum heavy, and and the bass, the basses were heavier. I knew. Well, we were always looking on credits, and I seen your name. Was it easier to work with talented producers around you? I talked to other producers, um, and I heard a producer tell me who's by himself does amazing music, but he told me that the minute he started doing music with other musicians and other producers, it got a little easier. How was it at Aftermath when you were with uh, Khalil, mm. um, or was it Fred Reck, 
all those guys. Yeah, fresh uh, stone around here. Yeah, yeah. Fresh stone the, being honest, man, when I first got to Aftermath, I was in the studio by myself. So okay. all of the years um, that I was signed uh, from late 2000, early 2001 to 2008, I was a producer that worked for Aftermath. I worked for Dr. Dre. Yeah. So being around when, you know, the era of DJ Khalil and Denon Porter and yep. um, Dewan Parker and, and so many, there were so oh, many high tech people. Too. High, high tech, tech. Right. Yes, yes. Yeah, we're, we're literally talking about Jelly Roll, Battle Cat, like all of these brothers. Yeah. We were we were all just serving a bunch of music, you know what I'm saying? So not yet everybody. Yeah. We were we That's were just right. there serving up a bunch of music. Jake won. When I left in two thousand eight and I came back in two thousand thirteen, that's when I came back as a producer with Dr. Dre. That's when I became part of the team. Ah, uh, okay. That's when it became different. The whole because okay. it was I've never worked in the studio with another producer. I never worked like it, if you turn around and you you jam with somebody. I mean, right. ten to one, they would be an instrumentalist or whatever. But I never like co-produced anything, you know. Uh, so okay. my my first time doing that was on Compton. Oh yeah. wow, that was my first time. And and Dre introduced me to that. He was like, "Man, I want you to be part of the team." He was like, I don't want you just to be sitting in the room by yourself. He was like, it's, it's time for you to stop doing the same old thing and expecting new results. He was okay. like, it's time for you to try something new. And so I, I was all for it. And I'm glad you made that point because yeah. um, I, I was first introduced to you um, from from our late friend, DJ Swell. May you rest in peace. Yeah, wow. Um, wow. He introduced me to you and we were talking from time to time when you were back in Atlanta. Is it okay that we talk about how you left, quote unquote, aftermath? You yeah. just told us that you, you came back out with the Compton, but I was introduced to you when you were you were doing your own thing uh, in Atlanta. Yeah. yeah. What happened? I I got lost, and there's a point in I think um, every real man's life where you have to do that man in a mirror thing. Yeah. And when you look at yourself and you don't, I I've always had insecurities, but I didn't like what I saw internally i didn't like what i saw spiritually i didn't like what i saw so i i literally went back to atlanta to get my feet back grounded like i was right. drinking heavily um right. you know i i literally was just just messing up my life i think i was the heaviest i've ever been in my life i was almost 300 pounds when i left la so everything was just self-destructive so right. i went back to atlanta to find some grounding mm -hmm. um you know and i and i started getting back into uh, my spirituality, I started getting back into physicality. I found out, yeah. you know, um, that I had some ailments and, and things like that. So there was mm -hmm. a lot of things that that kind of sat me down. Right. And when I finally sat down, I got clear-minded. Um, when 2013 came around, it was it was really time to get kind of back on the ball because I was doing so much underground stuff yeah. that you know that uh, once you're out of sight, it's out of mind. And so right. um, it was a blessing that Dre even had the door back open, uh, you know, so that I can uh, come through again. So well, why wouldn't he? Because I'm going to tell you right now about <laughs> about those underground years real quick. Sure. Um, this is when I became a super fan of your music. And it's okay, man. I Like other producers out here, man, you know, it's like macho, whatever. I am a super fan of Focus. I came across your album, 
mixtape, whatever you want to call it, music of the misinterpreted. First of all, the most incredible music, flips, instrumentation, lyrics, I've heard you spit. It was definitely the realest, for me, the realest rhymes that you ever wrote. I felt a wow. connection to you. Wow, bro. Um, thank you. I actually felt, without knowing you, what you were going through, yeah. uh, so to speak. Um, you, you wrote it all. You said it all on that album. And then those underground records, they weren't underground, underground. You're talking about, you were working with legends, Little Brother, Slum yeah. Village. Yeah. You and Slum Village, you guys have a, a really special relationship as well speak to that a little bit how'd you how'd you meet slum and t um at the time the one of my old friends uh time cannon used to manage them and so uh he made the connection between um my music and their music and uh me and young rj really uh just ah. hit it off that was really dope and you know t3 illa j like all yeah. of those guys, we just hit it off and we started making music together. I actually met Illa J first before I met the rest of the guys. Right. And uh, Illa okay. J was on my first endeavor, which was called Dedicated. So oh, that was yeah, my first. Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, so he was, he. Um, I met him again through Taim and then um, I just started working with Slum Village, especially that was kind of a, it wasn't the lowest point, but it was a low point because I was like, you know, nobody wants to hear my music no more. Nobody cares. So I really just got into a really creative place and I was deconstructing mm -hmm. how big I constructed the way I created. I just yeah. deconstructed it. And, and Music of the Misinterpreted was that deconstruction. It was literally oh, like, man, I, I, I was looking for ways to challenge myself to create, you know, and, yeah. and that's what that record was. Such a beautiful album thank you bro i know i've asked you a million times but you gotta re-release it <laughs> if i if i, I mean, do it i'm gonna remix it and and just I, and i'm talking about aesthetically you know you you ever listen to like your old stuff and be like ah like yeah there's that one thing yeah, yeah. It's, yeah, it's, okay. it's a split hair. I understand. Everybody wants the stuff to be a certain way. And yeah. if you get a second chance at it. But sometimes you should just you should just leave just it. Just roll with it, yeah. Yeah, because when I listen to, was it Idols and... Um, idols and Role Models. Yeah. Idol, idols and Role Models, man. Just as raw as they come. I mean, that's one of my favorite ones on there. Yo, that's crazy. This album, yo, I just got, I just got goosebumps. <laughs> that's love. Thank you. I mean, listen to this episode and more at officialchopshoppod.com and stream now wherever you listen to your podcasts.